The Secret Library podcast is brought to you in part by our amazing Patreon members. I want to give a special shout out to them for being a part of supporting the show. If you'd like to join and get solo episodes inside my writing process, as well as the chance to submit questions for special Q&A episodes, you can check it out and join at patreon.com slash secret library. As we're getting close to the halfway point in this season, I wanted to answer a question that some of you may be asking, which is, okay, it's really great to listen to all these episodes and learn all of this material, but how do we put this into practice? How do I move forward and use all of this material in my own writing life? Well, I'm so glad that you asked, because starting in April, we're going to release the Next Draft course, where I will be walking you through all of the tips, tricks, and resources from the season, as well as the inside scoop on how I've applied it in the revision of my own novel. If you would like to get notified when the course is first available, you can subscribe to Footnotes at secretlibrarypodcast.com. The Secret Library Podcast is very grateful to be brought to you by our incredibly generous Patreon members. For as little as $1 a month, you can get solo episodes and the inside scoop from my writing process. And during this crazy time, you can join monthly patron Zoom gatherings. You can learn all about it and join at patreon.com slash secret library. Other exciting news is that the next draft companion course is now available for pre-order. School opens on April 30th, but at a special price through May, you can learn more and sign up to join the course at carolinedonahue.com slash next draft course. This is the Secret Library Podcast. My guest this week is Stephanie Scott, who is a Singaporean and British writer who was born and raised in Southeast Asia. She read English literature at the universities of York and Cambridge and holds an MST in creative writing from Oxford University. She was awarded a British Association of Japanese Studies Toshiba Studentship for her anthropological work on her first novel, What's Left of Me is Yours, and has been made a member of the British Japanese Law Association as a result of her research. An early draft of the novel also won the A.M. Heath Prize, the Jerwin Arvon Prize for Prose Fiction, and was runner-up in the Bridgeport prize Peggy Chapman Andrews Award. What's Left of Me of Yours is one of The Observer's 10 Best Debuts of 2020 and has since been praised in the LA Times and numerous other publications. I really, really am so thrilled to share about this wonderful book and this wonderful writer, Stephanie Scott, and What's Left of Me of Yours. It's a fascinating subject about, based on an, a newspaper article that she read about the marriage breakup industry in Japan. And she took, as you will hear, a case and changed it into a novel. She changed the time period, she changed many details, but kept the integrity of the story. And I really loved this book. And I loved her dedication to the research and how she stuck with it until the book was what she wanted it to be. And I'm also particularly protective of this book because as someone who loves writing and as someone who loves writers and has been supporting them for years with this show, this is the first wave of us seeing book publication and books impacted by the COVID-19 crisis. So I was very much looking forward to attending a book launch for this book in London and 
unfortunately, that's had to be postponed. And so Stephanie, who's worked on this book for a decade, is now in the middle of, you know, a certain limbo. And while the book is right now, it is available in the UK, the publication date for the US has been pushed several months. So I want to encourage you that if this book speaks to you, pre-order it wherever you can and, and support this author because there are many authors out there whose books are coming out in the middle of this who are, you know, I know all of you listening can relate to how much work and, and heart all of these authors put into their books only to have them drop in the middle of a period of time when everyone is desperate for reading but staying at home rather than going out to buy books. So that is my soapbox. But I think it's important to remember, as much as we can support books, booksellers, writers and authors during this time, um, so much the better. So, soapbox finished and let's get on to the episode with Stephanie Scott. Hey Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. So I have been thinking a lot about the process of you writing What's Left of Me of Yours is Yours because it was such an undertaking and with so many details and a real life story involved and a whole different system of law that you incorporated into this book. I'm kind of in awe of the undertaking, actually. Thank you. It, it was a bit um, deranged, actually, now that I look back on it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but aren't all novels at the heart? You feel like if, if anyone told me how much this would take to get this done, I would never have started. If we knew that, we wouldn't begin. But it is worth it in the end, I think. Yes, absolutely. It is. It's like it's like climbing a mountain. And um, and if you thought about it too much, you wouldn't climb. So um, I'm very glad to have done it and learned so much along the way. It, it was really a sort of a life enriching process, actually. So I'm interested in how much you knew at mm. the end of, say, your first draft. And I know that this was, you know, many years of work so it may mm -hmm. not be completely clear you don't have like a timeline I'm sure of like draft one knew this draft two but what was it like and how much did you handle in stages because I think I, I like to think of this question of bandwidth which is mm -hmm. that if you tried to handle and hold in your mind every single complex detail like characters setting the system of law the crime itself each point of view at the same time through one draft I think my brain would explode maybe you're capable of it but I know I'm not so how did you start at the beginning to approach fleshing out the story? And then how did you go back and, and add more and more nuance to it? Sure. Um, well, I I started with a great deal of research, actually, because, um, you know, the novel is is so research based. And um, I mean, it, it is a work of, of fiction. It, it departs almost it departs very much from from the the real case in, in that I've um, you know created I've moved it actually twenty years into the past I've created new characters I've created new backgrounds for them um, new occupations they live in different places I you know there's there's a there's a real departure there but because um, the case occurred in Japan and I wanted to honour that and uh, you know I, I needed to 
research a great deal of Japanese law and <laughs> to spend a lot of time with Japanese lawyers, um, defense attorneys and prosecutors, um, both in Japan and in the UK. Um, and so I had to start with the research. Um, but your, your question is a very good one, actually, because my first draft took several years. And the reason it did take several years was because of the research and I suppose the, the, my ever-evolving knowledge um, of the legal system. And, um, and it was actually incredibly, it was incredibly useful with certain pro plot points. Um, my conversations with, with some defense attorneys in Tokyo were just entirely invaluable um, in that when I was just, for example, when I was discussing, um, so the narrator of What's Left of Me is Yours um, is a young lawyer and, um, you know, she finds out that her mother was murdered and she needs to get hold of the case file effectively. And initially I thought this must come from, you know, the public prosecutor's office um, because they will have the file, they will get it to her, all that, you know, she can access it. Um, that must be the way to do it. But then the more I researched into it, the more I realised actually that, um, you know, too much time has elapsed. Um, she wouldn't be able to to access the documents at all. Um, and in fact, in, in the past, you know, families were really kept out of the process a great deal, far more than they are now. You know, now they are really included, but it was very different, um, you know, in the uh, the 90s um, when my character Simiko was growing up and, and also by the time she is growing up, it is, it's too late. I was also told actually categorically and, and quite firmly <laughs> by a lot of the, um, the, the attorneys that a public prosecutor would under no circumstances give out a case file. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in the rules and structures of society and um, how we as people relate to those rules, you know, how do we bend them, the transgressions, the personal inclinations. Um, but it was made very, very clear to me that, uh, you know, even on grounds of, of sympathy or personal, you know, personal errors of judgment or, or anything like that would, would just not occur with a prosecutor. Um, and so I had to find another way. Um, to get Sumiko the case file, and um, you know that changed that changed a great deal of part one of the book. As a result of that, yes, that was a really really interesting scene, and I, I it is so interesting that a law system can completely change a narrative. That there's so much of it, and and for those listening, if you read this book, it does not read like a legal textbook at all, <laughs> but. <laughs> But there is so much about what's possible and what's not possible and how that's defined and, and that you had to understand, I'm sure. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, and I would say, um, although the story is told through a, a prism of Japanese history and culture, um, it's really the study of love that is at the heart of the book. And, and I felt that this had a more, this has a more global resonance, actually, um, and it's an exploration of human relationships, which are universal. Um, and this ties into Japanese law in, in, in a way in that um, the Japanese legal system um, is, you know, in in many ways, uh, an international system. It's a hybrid system. Um, so there's European law, there's American law, there's indigenous. It has indigenous Japanese and Chinese characteristics. So the law itself is interestingly global. Um, and so is the novel in that, you um, within the in the real case um 
what happened was um, a marriage breakup agent uh, was arrested for murdering his target. Um, and, and he was arrested at the scene and he quickly confessed to, to murdering her. But what he said as he was speaking to police detectives um, was, I loved her. I love her still. And it was that, the humanity of the original story that that drew me to it. Um, and uh, perhaps terrifyingly for my spouse, I was newly married at the time and I was thinking about love and enduring relationships. And I wondered, you know, can you truly love someone and kill them? Because love in its ideal form requires selflessness. Um, but then, you know, there are as many types of love as there are people, probably. So that, that was what interested me. Definitely. And I'm curious, did you choose to set it 20 years in the past to depart it from the original story that was your inspiration? Or was it because of the fact that the family wouldn't have as much access to the system because of the changes in the Japanese law? That is a really good question. Um, and it has, I think, quite a complicated answer because oh, good. <laughs> I want. Well, I wanted to. I wanted to separate myself from from the original case. That's true. But I also, I really like the eighties and nineties. <laughs> <laughs> um, like my soundtrack for the novel, the music I was listening to. It's very much rooted then. Um, when I would, when I would go, I don't actually listen to music when I write, but um, but I do go for long walks where I listen to music, and it was definitely the music the music of that time. And I just, I just love immersing myself in, in the culture of those decades. They, um, they really thrill me. And, uh, and I suppose that was when I grew up, um, in Asia, in Singapore specifically. And so I felt like I had, um, a very personal connection to those decades and, and I wanted to return there. Um, I mean, I also felt there were some similarities between, um, life in Tokyo in the 90s and, uh, you know, growing up in Singapore. And um, and I discovered these mainly through talking to, to Japanese friends and that there's, um, I think there's a scene in the book where Sumiko describes um, what she calls future club, um, you know, and the after-school tuition and, um, and the organizations around that. And they were very, very similar in Singapore actually so when I when I met a, a number of my Japanese friends we would actually bond over these similarities and um and I quite liked that I mean and I also I must confess I was also simply running from um the digital age and social media right <laughs> um, because I really yeah I, I just felt I felt so connected to those decades and I also felt that I really wanted to explore the internal narratives of my characters without the distractions and paraphernalia of modern life. It's where I prefer to be, I think. Oh, yeah. I, I think this is such a question that we have to think about now with writing. You know, are we going to involve it or are we going to try to avoid it? And yes. I just I just thought because it, it struck me when you said, oh, I said it 20 years in the past. And I thought, yeah. oh, because my book should have 
originally based on the idea I had been been set in the early 90s and I didn't have the guts to go back there. So I contrived a way to make the, the main thrust of it happen much later, but I put it in like 2008 so that I didn't have to go full digital, but yeah. wasn't quite so far in the past because it felt like I would get buried under the research if that were the mm-hmm. case. And yeah, I think this has really changed, you know, the faster technology moves, the more we have to consider, oh, was it TikTok or was it Snapchat or was it the, you know, depending on what you're, you're in. And, and it's something that was written even for two years ago could be considered historical in some ways, which is crazy. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, that idea of the, you know, the past is a foreign country. Um, and yes, I, I'm very interested in that. I'm very interested in what you said, actually, about how um, 2008 is a midway point. I hadn't quite considered that, but of course it is. Um, We were still on, I was still on, I mean, I was still working in finance then, so I was still on a a BlackBerry. But it is really interesting that you say that, actually, because because now the impact of social media on our lives is, it's it's very intense and... um, and disorienting almost. Like I suddenly find that I have have multiple conversations with people across social media. Um, and this means I can't always find the messages or the appointments. Oh, totally. These I've scheduled because I'm like, was it on Instagram? Was it on Twitter? Was it by email? Was it Facebook? It's just madness. It's like that scene in um, the film, he's just not that into you. Um <laughs> Um, where, where she says, um, you know, oh my God, I have to check my messages at home. And then I check Snapchat, um, you know, but I don't know if he's talking to me on my website or, you know, it's, it's just really Drew Barrymore. It's just really, really funny. <laughs> she just describes this disorientation because even though that film was set, um, a while ago now, uh, I feel that I, I do, I suddenly feel like that disorientation has re-entered our lives and that it's here to stay. <laughs> okay. And so, and I think it would have changed what the characters did in your story. I mean, how, I mean, first of all, I'm really interested in the industry of mm. a breakup agent. And I think that there's no way they wouldn't have used social media and, and used those methods. But there's something to me more... I don't know, there was something really engaging about the fact that he had to follow her to a street market or he had to, it was almost like a stakeout. I have a thing with stakeouts. So Mm -hmm. I would be much more interested in that if I were you writing this story than just thinking about somebody kind of, uh, you know, hacking into somebody's social media to figure out where they would be. Well, you're right, actually. It's the social contact that is most interesting. But um, but modern marriage breakup agents, they still do stakeouts. Um, it's not so much about hacking. I mean, they definitely utilize social media um, and they, you know, they will they will coach clients through various texts. They offer all kinds of of of, of services, but they do, they will still do stakeouts and they will still do, um, you know, following the target around, um, assessing their daily routine, their favorite places. And they will try to, you know, the, and of course the first meeting is, is always in, in person and they will try and find common ground on which they can interact. So that's still the same. Um, but having said that, I think with the novel, um, 
I am a huge fan of Graham Greene. Mm. Um, and of course, The End of the Affair was a, was a massive influence. Um, and I wanted to... I wanted to take it back into that kind of world. I mean, when I first started thinking about the novel, it, you know, it struck me um, as uh, Anna Karenina meets Pulp Noir. <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually, when I was, when my American editor offered for the novel, she was like, describe the novel in one sentence. And that's what I said. <laughs> but she must have liked it because, you know, everything went ahead. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I initially I was like, my God, what have you said? Um, but I, but I, I do really, really like, as as you say, that that private detective stakeout territory where it's really about people looking at other people and figuring out ways to approach them. And you're completely right that 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 is what really interested me. And of course, in the real case, um, you know, he did he approached her and, and everything went swimmingly from there. Um, which is why I really wanted to disrupt that in the novel. I really right. wanted to show this crisis of conscience and where the personal interrupts the professional, as in this profession, it must do. Yeah, there's no way it doesn't get complicated. Exactly. Yeah, totally. And I, I really like that idea of an experienced agent. I wanted to ask... Oh, the experience agent is, is yeah, of course. I mean, the more he's done it, the more complicated it's likely to be. Yeah, and the more jaded he is. I mean, you know, when you when you when you listen to a lot of the well, the marriage breakup agents who purport to be very experienced, you know, they speak about their loneliness and their lack of trust. Um, and so it was actually so in in terms of character development, um, really, really digging deep into Kaitaro's experiences, what motivates him, his weaknesses. That was really, really key, actually, in developing the love story, um, working out what his pressure points might be. Yeah, and why she was different yeah, than why the other she... cases. Absolutely. So many of them, um, yeah, my, my, uh, I, had a, I had a wonderful group of, um, of beta readers and... Um, and they would, and they 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 asked that in, in a lot of the early drafts. You know, why is she why is she different? And um, and it's quite it's quite hard to to pin that down actually because you know why you're attracted to someone, why you love someone. It's it's quite a it's so significant and yet also insubstantial. It's very hard to really get a handle on it. Um, you know that instant attraction. It's a combination of many many things. It's quite ephemeral. So. Um, yeah. <laughs> I know. So, so much, there's so much in there. Cause I, I could see it also being as much about the spouse, um, of the person that you're following, because I wonder if in some cases I could see a marriage interruption situation where you were sympathetic to the man, you know, who wants to divorce his wife. And in this case, of course, you're much more sympathetic to Rena and yeah. And so you, I think as if I was sent in to disrupt it and I thought the guy I was working for was a jerk, then mm -hmm. I would instantly be a bit protective of, of Rena in this case. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And, and also, you know, the, the marriage that you're breaking up completely foregrounds the, um, 
or is the, the background to the the love story, and it it impacts on it tremendously. Um, you know, so we're not only looking at Kaitaro's pressure points, and we're looking at Rena's as well, and what she has experienced and what her life has been like. And and I guess I wanted to capture how you know when two people meet and they fall in love, it's really it's a combination of so many things, and sometimes the you know one of those things is timing, and they are what the other one needs. Um, and they can be crucial, you know. So uh, I quite liked that, particularly with deepening love affairs, that idea of um, how a person can become essential to you, how your survival and happiness can almost hinge on another person. I was really interested in that. Absolutely. I'm, I'm wondering how did you handle the sort of sheer volume of, of thinking and consideration you had to have? And also all of the research and all of the input and, and conversations with lawyers and, and travel and mm-hmm. all of the things that you did for this book. How did you distill that down into actual writing? Because I can imagine that I would feel almost flattened by the task of A, answering such you know, a fundamental question, but also having so much input and feeling so much pressure to get it right. I mean, was it ever, did it ever feel like you had to research forever and that you would never be ready to write? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, actually, even when I was writing, the research never stopped. It didn't stop, um, you know, right up until final edits, which took place um, last year. So right up to my final edits, I was still researching, I was still fact-checking, I was still um, I was still delving into things. Um, and of course, when you're in final edits, you know, you, you really want to, to get everything right. I, I, you know, really tried to the best of my ability, um, I think. And uh, you end up doing quite um, strange neurotic things. Like, for example, there's a, a prison in a prison, an external prison scene in the novel. Um, and, uh, the prison I'd chosen, there aren't really photographs of it. Um, you know, I think, but it's one of the, uh, the Meiji era red brick, um, prisons. And while I could find pictures of the other Meiji era prisons, I couldn't find pictures of this one. Um, and so in the end I ended up finding a painting done by a former inmate. Um, and, and just just to check that it was right, and um, and it's it's strange really because you know the scene it doesn't doesn't require immense detail <laughs> the outside of the prison right it really does but I had reached such a level of panic and paranoia um, that I <laughs> I went to these lengths and I remember talking to my editor about it on the phone and she was just silent she was just like okay um, I'm going to take the book away from you very soon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was talking to another friend of mine who's um, who's writing a wonderful novel inspired by her father's experiences, and she too was was talking to me about research. And you know, you do so want to get it right, and then hopefully you don't make mistakes. And you know, you you try, you try so hard. Um, but uh, she was asking me about this, and she she was in an earlier stage of draft. Um, and I said to her, I was like, look, there's plenty of time for you to become a demon, and go a bit mad about this <laughs> just but in the early stages relax I mean what I did was follow my characters you know really beyond holding all the research in my head because the story is driven by the characters fundamentally um 
and you know the the research will always have an impact but I think I think that's how I did it I think I I focused on the story I mean because also I just want to tell a good story I just want to write I want to write an immersive and fun novel that will draw people in I mean above all I'm a novelist and I write fiction so um that's that's what grounded me I think I think it has to, because if, you know, if the characters aren't at the heart of it, then there's no, um, there's no through line and it just feels like a bunch of information. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And actually, um, I think one of the major challenges was, you know, conveying the research with an extremely light touch, (laughs) you know, in that you don't feel like you're explaining. I, I wanted to try and feel like, so the reader didn't feel like I was explaining. So I, I tried you know, I tried for there to be no research heavy paragraphs or, you know, and, and here is all the work I've done. You have to, you have to completely erase that. And I actually, there was one day where I spent, I spent a whole day on, um, a sentence where I was trying to, um, incorporate the concept of a, of a jadin, a financial settlement that can be made between, um, the perpetrator of a crime and the victim. Um, and I was like, how do I, how do I incorporate this so lightly? It was in dialogue that the meaning of it is conveyed without disrupting that dialogue, without it feeling like, and here is the author with information. <laughs> it's <laughs> you know? so hard and you've worked so hard on it. And, and of, of course I would be fascinated by so much of it that I would there would be the risk of the book being like, oh my God, did you know? And then like <laughs> sidebar, did you know that this is how murder trials work in this period of time, in this situation? And it's like, no, that's a novel. It's not a nonfiction book for God's sake. Yes. But in many ways, actually, in many ways you do, you do, you do get to do that because you are, you are setting the scene. Um, so it's really, you know, just as you discover it, privately on the page or or in a conversation so the reader discovers it in the way you set out the scene in the way you you know where everyone is positioned and you know the context that you're able to provide sort of quite naturally through the characters um so it's almost like you're in the middle of a film um I think that was what I wanted to achieve I wanted to to have this kind of filmic immersive experience where the reader felt that they were just watching everything and um, one of my beta readers actually said Of course. Well, when I was watching Kaitaro and then she was like, I mean, when I was reading about him, (laughs) but I was so thrilled by that because I was like, yes, this is what I want. (laughs) But, um, but it took, it took many, it's, I think there were probably three main drafts. Um, the first one took the most time. Um, the first one took, um, about four, five years. And then the second and third drafts took about a year each. And I think by that time, because you have so much of the story down, um, you can really start to focus in on the details and pull in all the threads together. And you asked how I kept them all in my head. And in honesty, I don't know. I actually, I actually write notes to myself across sheets, blank paper, and my office is filled with sheets of blank paper. Um, <laughs> I still, even as we're speaking now, I still haven't cleared the office of these piles of paper. <laughs> I think my husband thinks they will never leave, um, which is quite quite possible. Um, you but should I tell him that, that they're your archive. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> well, they're pretty ghastly as well. You know, I write at speed, but I mean, some of them are practically illegible. Um, but I think just the writing, writing down, uh, writing down notes to myself, it's like having a conversation with myself. Um, and it just helps fix things in my mind. And I would do that for all kinds of things. So, um, factual arcs um there's an evidence arc obviously through the novel as Simiko discovers more and more um there are emotional character arcs all of these got their own sheets of paper <laughs> basically yeah you have to you have to find a way to make sense of it all because it's too much I mean I feel like it feels to me like some sort of jellyfish or like a giant squid and I'm I'm trying to fit it. My analogy has always been for revision that it's like trying to put a squid into a suit. It's just yes. like there's so much to keep your mind around. You can only hold one piece at a time, but yet they all influence each other. And I just, the fact that there was still research going on, this is, of course there is, you know, you, you keep researching as you revise, but there's this danger also that it never ends. So how did you, was it that your editor took it away from you? Is that how it ended? Or, or did you reach a point where you felt like, okay, I think I've got it? Um, my editor certainly did try to take it away from me. <laughs> but, um, but I'm pleased to say, actually, that I think I reached a point internally where I felt, and that's it, I'm done. It was the kindness and um, an early enthusiasm, I think, of the people around me who, um, who really made this book happen. Um, you know, I was really, I'm really grateful to all the people who've supported me and who said yes instead of no, uh, because it was such an undertaking such a gigantic task you know I think it would have been very it would have been very easy for me to feel crushed and stopped um but now that I look back on it I'm I'm actually amazed by the people who just told me to keep going um and you know thank thank god they did just I think it's just so I important got <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's 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 strange because I think we think of writing as this lonely pursuit or this thing that you do all alone, you know, these m sort of weird mythical images of being in some cottage out in the middle of a field with a torn sweater, you know, <laughs> and and that it just sort of pours out, which is absolutely not true. And and the fact that there really is a lot of input needed in order to keep going. Yes, because you have to make so many decisions along the way, um, you know. And as, as I say, there uh, there aren't there aren't very many departures at all. Um, you know, I mean, there are about yes, yeah, I think two at most. Um, but the the video, but the other ones are very small. The video is the largest of them. I mean, you have to make so many decisions going forward that uh, that you need to talk to people um, about it. And I was actually very. I am very grateful to the Japanese embassy in London and the um, the secretaries for legal affairs there um, who are actually prosecutors from Tokyo um, for being so available with their time. I mean, I'd done quite a lot of research by the time I um, by the time I approached them. So I think initially they were quite they were quite surprised by how much I knew at that point. I think it was quite unusual. Um, and so they very kindly also took me under their wing and it was great just to be able to to say to them you know can we can we go out for lunch can i can i come and see you i, I have questions um 
and then of course you end up asking the same questions over and over again because you just want to get it right <laughs> yeah are you sure <laughs> Yeah, you sure? Well, also, also, I think I learned a lot about um, interviewing, actually interviewing uh, subjects for research, because people's answers are often often quite different from time to time. You know, I definitely found that with with people I spoke to in Japan, they'll have different views from day to day, um, and their opinions will will shift and change depending on what they want to convey in that moment. So, um, actually, in some cases, you do have to ask the same question several times just to get a really full picture. So how did you reconcile that? I mean, I think this is a really important thing for people who have to interview people in order mm. to research and, and go forward with their revision. Um, so your question was, how did I... How, how, did, I you, how did you reconcile the, the variety of their answers? And, and what was your method for interviewing that, that helped you make sense of all that? Um, well, it feels... It's probably going to sound like badgering. <laughs> 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 well, I think I, I, I met with met with the same people several times and we would have discussions and um, and I would reintroduce the same questions and just see how they responded to them. Um, we would obviously talk about a whole range of different things, but it was by um, reintroducing these key questions that you almost you you get a full picture over time because, you know, you spend more time with the person and then you. And then, and, and this issue, and, you know, the more time you can talk about an issue, the more the complexities within it arise and become visible. And so it was, it was really just like a, you know, by talking to the person more and more, a fuller picture emerges. And then, you know, then, then actually you can use your artistic judgment as a writer, um, and particularly as a writer of fiction, you know, what are the, what are the accents within this? What are, you know, what are the notes that ring most true what you know what would my character feel if they were in this position um and then you can start to apply it um I was actually thinking earlier when you were asking about my research and all the detail there does come a point where you have to put it down to write and really step away from it um so that only the most important things remain in your head because if you're saturated in the detail you're you're not going to be able to follow the story um and and create and, and, and write the fiction, you know, so there, there is a point as well in the drafting where I would just have to set all the books, all the articles, all my interview notes, um, which were sort of strewn across my Blackberry, my phone, my email, my laptop. Um, you have to put all of them to one side, really. And it's, it's what remains in your head, the impressions that remain with you, I think, that, that are the strongest. So it's almost like a, a mental filtering system <laughs> that your mind, your subconscious has control of. Um, which is quite frightening now that I say that out loud. <laughs> well, I think it's, I think it is frightening because you have to trust yourself and to trust that you've retained the things that matter to the story and then to go to the story. Because I think that there's a lot of pressure. I hear this from a lot of people too, that they, they want to get it right so badly. And when they're writing about, you know, maybe emotional situations that they can relate to, but they're in a context that's that's quite unfamiliar to them and, and separate from their life skills. They're, they really want to get it right. So they end up stuck between like draft one and draft two, feeling like, oh, I just need to know a bit more. I need to know a bit more before I get back into it. And then it's very, very difficult to, to trust that, okay, I've learned a lot and I can do another draft if I have to. And I'm going to learn something by actually writing the story. Yes, Yes, exactly. And your instincts, 
I mean, I think as as a writer, your instincts are so key, you know, in everything that we do. And learning to trust them is a struggle um, because we're all, I certainly I am plagued with self-doubt on an almost continual basis, um, which is quite wearing. But um, you do have to learn to trust your instincts. And I think I've become better at that in the process of drafting this novel. And, um, you know, particularly as it went through uh, beta readers, particularly my my Japanese readers, I think what what helped me tremendously is that, um, you know, they came back to me and said that in the novel they recognise the Japan they know, that they have seen. Mm. Um, and, you know, one of them was... Um, one of one of them is a, is an editor in Tokyo, and she um, she really really connected with the the portrayal of, of modern Japanese women and, and actually just the tensions um, and societal restrictions that they experience um, that actually that we all experience, you know the choices that all women have to make, um, the compromises, uh, the trade offs, the I suppose the difference between what is expected of us and what we want. Um, it really chimed with her and uh, she said some really lovely things, um, which which meant a lot to me. And not to say that, you know, there, there aren't people that that won't disagree with the book or, you know, won't like it. But um, but it was really important to me to to hit the right notes. And I think the more the more I did that um, with the with readers who I really respected and admired, um, the more the confidence um, grew, actually. It's it's so validating when that happens. Yes. <laughs> like, oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So I have one other question, which I think is a, it's a tricky question, but I think people are always putting a lot of pressure on themselves to get the book done in a certain amount of time. And since, you know, this book took 10 years, mm-hmm. I'm wondering how you feel about the amount of time it took. Are you are you having this feeling, which I hear from people, of like next book is going to be faster? Because I on the on the sort of opposite end to that, I think about Donna Tart, who also takes about ten years for a book, and and once said, and I'm going to misquote her, and I've done it before, but she says something to the effect of, "Well, I tried to write it faster, and I didn't like it. So too bad for you all who want them faster." I mean, she didn't say that last bit. I'm adding it myself, <laughs> but. But I'm wondering how you feel about really diving in and immersing and taking that time to write it and how it felt to you and how you feel, you know, looking forward to future books, possibly. Well, that's a wonderful question. Um, I love it. And uh, and at the risk of putting the fear of God into my agent, I'm going to say <laughs> that um, the work takes as long as it takes. And um, I really needed the time. Um, to write this novel and um, because my novels are quite research heavy I mean the the next one although it's in its absolutely earliest infancy um, you know would be is potentially about the second world war in Asia um, and my uh, Singaporean and and British families experiences of that Um, you know this is not a this is not a research light topic (laughs) it's gonna require it's going to, you know, it's, oh my God, it's going to require immersion. There are more languages. I mean, Lord, uh, I'm terrified. Um, but, uh, but to answer your question, I really need time and space to think 
Um, and when I was drafting this novel, I think to my husband, it must have appeared like I was just sitting around not doing very much. Um, but the thinking was was really crucial. Um, and I, I would say to, to every writer, actually, please take your time because there is no rush. There is no pressure. And, and I know there seems like there is. But when I was on the um, novel course at Faber, um, which was extremely instrumental um, in my writing life and my deciding to to write, um, they said, you know, several agents and editors who spoke to us said, you know, we don't really we don't care that the novel has taken five years or 10 years. We, we care that it's the best version of itself, that it's as strong as it can be. Um, and you really want to know that the novel is as you want it as well. Um, like I had a lot of interest from agents when I was writing the novel, um, but I didn't sign with anyone until I'd finished it because I wanted to know what I wanted from the book and I wanted to finish it on my own terms, which was a good thing actually, because, you know, when you do, when I did speak to agents, um, they were all lovely, but everyone wanted to do something different with the book. Mm. Really glad that I knew where I stood. Um, and also my agent just hundred percent got it. Um, from the outset and and I, we really needed that too actually um you do really need that too because when when you send a book out um there will always be rejections the rejections come first because the yeses are hardest to secure they have to go through more teams and more processes um so you know when you are getting those initial rejections you you need to be sure that you you believe in the project you believe in the direction you've taken it you you know your whole team is on board you're all on the same page um but i do think that time is key. Um, and there is such pressure on novelists to produce things quickly. And I mean, there's pressure now for me to produce a second novel quickly. And I will try. I will absolutely try. Um, you know, if I hope this comforts my agent greatly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I will absolutely try. Um, but also, it does take as long as it takes. And you don't want to rush. And also, um, I feel quite strongly about this. Life, life gets in the way. I mean, for me, life absolutely got got in the way. There were times when I had to stop writing, um, you know, to, for various like family traumas and things. Life, life will always intervene. You, you just have to fight it. Yes, and I think that's so important because I think. It's so easy for writers to beat themselves up. I mean, we use words as our medium, so we're particularly good at insulting and, and manipulating ourselves. And I think it's just important to remember it's okay if it takes a while. It's okay if it's hard. It's okay if you don't know all the answers, you know, because there's another draft if you want it. And I just yes. think that's really important because I think there's this standard set that like, if you're a really great novelist, you can write a book every five minutes. And, and that isn't necessarily true. And it doesn't mean you're doing a bad job. No, exactly. Exactly. In fact, I, I'm very suspicious of the, the five minutes. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and you're, you're totally right. You know, take as many drafts as you need. And in, in fact, before my agent sent the book out on submission, um, I said, I, you know, he wanted to send it out immediately. And I was like, no, no, I have, I have some more work that I want to do. And, and we'd left work to be done with the editors as well. So this was just stuff I felt that I had to, to finish. I mean, in the end, he had to pry it out of my hands. Um, but I'm so glad I took that time. I don't regret it for a moment. I don't regret any of the drafts. They were all worthwhile. 
Um, you know, and I, I, I mean, in many ways, when I stopped researching, I mean, part of me wonders if I was just exhausted. <laughs> My body, like, stop. <laughs> there is also that, there is an element of that. Like, you know, you, you cannot write the book forever. You, you, you have to let it go. And, and fortunately, the, the people around you will, will make you let it go. So just, just get everything that you want to get done, done to the best of your ability um, before people start to like grab the manuscript and take it away. I think that's the best possible advice you could give. Oh, thank you. It's imperfect, but you know, I, I hope it's helpful. Yeah, I think everything is. I'm so, so glad we had this chance to talk. It's, it's so satisfying to get into a book that has so many different complicated elements to it and to hear behind the scenes how it all came together. So I'm, I'm really grateful and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.